Welcome to the R Word Podcast. I'm Dustin. I'm Lowell. And we are here to discuss reparations in the church. Welcome to today's episode of The R Word. Dustin and I are with Reverend Peter Jarrett Shell. Peter is a member of the Reparations Committee of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington, rector of Calvary Episcopal Church, and author of Reparations, A Plan for Churches. So, Peter, thanks for being with us today. It's great to be here. I'm really thank you. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, we're so happy to have you. Peter, first... Can you share some of your story and journey towards racial justice with us? Who are you and why are you here as a person who is practicing reparations? Sure. Let's see. For the past uh, 12 years, I've been the pastor of Calvary Episcopal Church uh, in Washington, D.C. It's a historically black congregation located about six blocks uh, from the Capitol building. So we're right kind of in the heart of it. And for me, you know, as a white pastor called to serve as pastor of this uh, historically and still predominantly black congregation, the question of racial justice, racial equity, how it how it shaped my role and my presence with the congregation was always uh, either just below the surface or often sort of explicit. I think like a lot of maybe sort of well-intentioned liberal white folks, I felt pushed and called um, to a deeper kind of engagement, a deeper sense of where I was showing up and how I, how I wanted to be part um, of a broader movement for racial justice, um, beginning kind of at the, at the start of the, um, the Black Lives Matter movement with the murder of Trayvon Martin. And for me in particular, because my son was, we were, we were pregnant with my son at that time, and my wife is Black and my son is biracial. And so this question of how I was showing up for them uh, became very central and prominent. Um, and began having a lot of conversations in and around the, the church and the neighborhood and, and how we can participate there. One piece that came up for Calvary is that um, Calvary, and was partly the reason I was, was called there, Calvary is in a rapidly uh, gentrifying part of D.C. And so the congregation had some hope that I would kind of be able to help connect with this new group of people that were coming in. And we had begun to att- attract a couple white members here and there. Calvary is a it's just an incredibly warm and loving place, so they were definitely welcomed and embraced. But there was also some concern about how they were showing up, about the way they were participating, maybe with less of a sense of wanting to learn about what the congregation was about and more of a sense of kind of wanting to come and throw weight around about how things should be. And so some members of the congregation noting this approached me and said, I think we need some kind of formation for these new white members coming in about what it means to join in as a part of a, a black congregation um, and the expectations around that. So we began hosting a Christian formation piece around it because it was a very small group. Uh, we sent out a larger invitation to our, our diocese, which is like the local geographical group of uh, roughly 100 odd churches near us. And we had a whole, I don't know, maybe six week long course around this. And at the end of it, one of our members said, you know, well, what are we going to do about it now? Now that we've had this conversation, yes, we can be show up maybe more responsibly, more curiously, with greater integrity in our communities, but how are we taking part in sort of showing up in a broader sense around our commitments to equity and justice? And 
she had with her at the time a newspaper article about something that had recently happened at Georgetown University. Georgetown, of course, is one of the first major institutions that, recent, at least in recent memory, stepped out into this question of reparations. But there was a lot of frustration about it, having initially said they were going to do this, that, that not much happened. And this was right around the time that the student body kind of hoped to be able to provoke them into actually making that commitment real by committing to tax themselves and committing to put it towards a reparations uh, fund. And that news had just come out. Of course, we're in D.C., so the local papers were talking about it. And so um, Caroline is, you know, shared this article and said, could we push the Diocese of Washington to begin considering this question? And we reached out larger to the diocese to try and bring in some other leaders to wrestle with this question. And we eventually approached diocese and leadership said, we want to look into this. We asked for some initial kind of grant money to start, not grant money, but allocation for them to start uh, researching specifically at that stage, the diocesan history of entanglement with the institution of chattel slavery. Eventually, uh, we were commissioned as the task force of the diocese. And we worked investigating this question, worked um, not only kind of looking at that very specific question of the diocese entanglements with chattel slavery, but more broadly, at other parts of the story you could look at post-emancipation uh, through Jim Crow and into the present moment, and how the diocese had not only showed up in a way that sometimes perpetuated and advanced racial inequity in the area, but also had tangibly benefited, can tangibly benefited from it. That all culminated last year, actually just one year ago, when we presented a piece of legislation to our diocese that was voted on, that commissioned an official uh, working group, a committee, that was going to present a proposal so that we're halfway through it, two years, to present a specific kind of nuts and bolts proposal of this is what the diocese is going to commit, this is how it's going to be dispersed, all of those pieces there. Um, I felt that it was uh, important at this stage to make sure that the next stage of work was Black-led. Um, and so there are, the new committee has two working groups. It has a policy working group that's laying out what the actual program is going to be. It has an education working group that's working on uh, building in greater diocesan support and lobbying for it, basically. Um, and those are both have Black chairs. And then I, I joined in as a, as a member of the group, and I've been doing that now. So it's been probably about five, six years that I've been working on it. That's probably too much, but there you go. That's 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 rough strokes. No, thank you for uh, taking us through that journey uh, from the genesis of your own uh, participation in this work to how that has become a larger scale initiative. My, my follow-up question to that uh, would be, how has the community, that immediate church community, you talked about some type of racialized paternalism that existed mm -hmm. in the beginning. Um, how has that evolved or changed? And how has the broader Episcopal community uh, responded yeah. to the initiative? So it's been it's been mixed. Um, so I'd say that the Episcopal Church, um, and certainly in this area, sort of conceives of itself, like broadly speaking, it's, it is a very much a predominantly white denomination. It's not exclusively so. Our diocese has made the work different here, and I think more, maybe more fruitful and interesting. Our diocese does have um, a cohort of historically black congregations that have a very strong sense of their identity and, and position as black Episcopalians and what that means. But still, it's very much a predominantly white church, understands itself that way, and has also generally understood itself as being, particularly in recent years, a sort of progressive and liberal. So I think there was initially 
a lot of receptiveness uh, to the work and the idea of it. Um, it's it's been difficult as we've really gotten into the the weeds of like what does this actually look like? You know, where can we see the legacy of these assets? How does it shape the diocese? How are we still participating in um, advancing racial inequity in this region? Um, so there's been mixed reaction there. There's been definitely pushback um, and a lot of you know criticism. There has been some congregations that have have really you know wrestled with it and come through and 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 been you know ready to to step into a new moment and to try something new. So it has been mixed. But I'd say initially, I mean, one thing that was very telling when we presented this legislation, it's like you know like any legislative process, you present what you're doing, and then people start talking about making an amendment. And we had stipulated in the legislation we put forward that this committee um, was to be both black led and majority black. Um, and a proposal was put forward, an amendment was put forward, that this groups would need to make all of their meetings live streamed on YouTube um, and would need to tell everyone, you know, two months in advance or whatever it was when they'd be meeting and publish their meeting minutes within a week. And it's not to say that like any of the committees that's created by the diocese, they have reporting standards because we want to be accountable and transparent. But the onerousness of this and the degree of scrutiny and sort of inspe- you know, inspection of what this group is doing propo- under proposed on this amendment was like far beyond anything any body of the diocese engages in. It was voted down partly because a black female pa- pastor here in the diocese spoke against it. And so clearly and forcefully and, I mean, persuasively, I think everyone was just kind of scared to, to speak against it because she made the case so well. But it did highlight the fact that there is some real skepticism, some real pushback within the diocese around this. And partly because like in any reparations process, part of the work has been uncovering this story, uncovering more of the story um, so I think there was generally resistance to acknowledging the way that we were, um, the diocese as a whole, the Episcopal diocese in the region was an engine that helped push forward racial inequity. But especially as we started to actually uncover, you know, specific instances and moments where we could identify this process happening in dramatic terms, that provoked a whole new level of reckoning. Um, so I'd say, like, in, in answer to your question, it has been mixed. There's definitely been congregations that I think have really engaged as an opportunity for repentance and reformation and and engaged it with a, I want to say excitement isn't exactly the right word, but a real passion. And then predictably, there's been other sectors that have really dug in their heels um, with a whole lot of skepticism and and bad faith arguments. Yeah, I appreciate that information, Peter. You mentioned that reparations is an opportunity to repent and reform, to Mm -hmm. change individually and institutionally. And I think like you, in the short time that we've been doing this work here uh, in Northwest Arkansas, we've had mixed responses. And and we've conceived with help from uh, Greg Thompson and Duke Kwan, we've conceived of reparations as repairing truth, wealth, and power. And it's mm-hmm. been really interesting for us, I think, to see the different responses when when we have asked people to repair truth, wealth, and power. And sometimes power has been the hardest part uh, for some mm. of our, our white siblings to, to say or, or to understand to do reparations requires us to let go of control and to, to trust 
um, our black brothers and sisters more than we more than we we may have uh, in the past. And and actually, I would push it even further that if we're really trying to get um, and this is the really difficult piece, um, and I'm not like I'm not trying to say this in like a way of instilling white guilt at all. It's just like yeah. a recognition that I think is necessary. Is that we actually, I think, to do it right, we have to get around this question at least, if nowhere else, around this question of like what equity and reparation looks like. We have to get to be able to the point of pushing ourselves to trust our black brothers and sisters more than we trust ourselves on this point. Dustin, would you add anything to to that part of the conversation? No, I think that's a a pretty consistent response. A lot of it has to do with the center of all of this as we are talking is the issue of of power is the most important thing. And Mm -hmm. so we we talk about truth, the restoration of truth and wealth, but the power dynamic is the most difficult point for people Mm -hmm. who have had control to take their hands off of the wheel and to no longer steer the ship is the most difficult thing to, to accomplish. And so that is normally where these conversations tend to um, break down um, in yeah. the movement, you know, stalls. And uh, the and at the center of it, that really tells us what, our, what, what the idols are in these conversations, mm-hmm. right, and what our priorities are. Is it really to promote racial healing to push forward restorative justice, or is it to appease while still maintaining power? And, yeah. Uh, and that takes some deep soul searching um, for those mm-hmm. who are participating. And so, yeah. in, in your opinion, how have you tried to work through those complexities in light yeah. of those, those, um, those obstacles in this pursuit? Mm-hmm. How have you responded on the back end even of that um, failed vote? Um, to actually mm-hmm. move the initiative forward? So I think yeah, this is a very good question. Um, I think there's a couple different pieces about how I think about it. One, I think that um, the when we're dealing with something like this, that people are really reticent to do, like you said, seeding power, I think the best option available, um, and this is tricky because like I do think, you know, people say that like, what is it, the whole, the, the, the trope that you can't legislate morality and like, I'm actually skeptical of that. So like, I think sometimes the structures we create um, can actually help shape us. And so I think, you know, for folks that are engaging this to build in early on saying like specific things, like we're saying, look, we're going to create this group that's going to create the recommendations. We're going to put in writing that this group must be majority black, that it must be black led. We're going to put in writing that beyond uh, that leadership within the diocese, that they are going to be required to, form uh, an advisory group comprised of lead black leaders outside the diocese that are working on this, that are going to get to weigh in on what this looks like. So to, to put those expectations in place, and I think partly we end up getting shaped ourselves internally by the institutions we create. For those who can be persuaded to really take on the work and take it on a way that has integrity, um, truth and truth that connects personally, um, is maybe the most powerful motivator. Of course, like we as people of faith, you know, like Jesus tells us, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And so like he has that clear sense of the power of it. And so I think being able to sometimes drill into 
real specifics where you say, look, we, we can document, you know, that your congregation participated in this way, did these things that have negatively impacted the black community around you. But there is this specific that we can identify can be really powerful motivation. I do also acknowledge it's, it can be a little risky because when you get that specific, sometimes people want to limit the question to just those really specific nitty gritty things. And when they deal with that, they say, well, we're done. But I do, I have seen sometimes where that question of investigating does bring people into a broader question of like, well, throughout my life, how am I showing up? How is my community showing up in the racial dynamics of our community? How are we participating in white supremacy? How have we? Um, what is the wealth that, we, that we're sitting on and we've stolen? And, and what are we going to do about that? So I think that that truth piece is really essential. But I think the last thing, and I think about Again, looking in the Gospels, that moment when Jesus is teaching the crowd and he teaches about you know, his own coming crucifixion and the cost of the cross, and everybody leaves, right? And then he turns to the disciples and he says, will you leave? And they say, where would we go? You have the words of truth. And that willingness to accept that, in fact, we are not going to be able to convert everyone and that we don't have to, that it's not uh, necessary. What we need is a significant minority of people that are really committed and ready to act sacrificially. And what will then happen, I expect, if we can get them on board, is there will be some other, there will be another section of people that sort of come on board because this is what everyone's doing and they're going to go along with it. I think that's great. Um, How oftentimes we create that's kind of a fool's errand task Mm -hmm. of getting consensus that we don't need consensus. I also love the point that you made about the legislation of morality. Uh, I, I hear that all the time, and I'm like, no, what, what, what legislation communicates is what is acceptable and what is not acceptable, right? And mm-hmm. those norms being, you know, created, you know, shape behavior, shape the way we think about the world, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, you lived in a society where certain things were acceptable until they we're no longer such, right? And oftentimes it is legislation that has changed the way people perceive those things. And mm-hmm. so I think that's an excellent point. Um, you, you're, you are in this, this lane of kind of talking about what's the kind of missing ingredient of the pursuit. Can you kind of go mm-hmm. into some of that more? Like, what do you think the, 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 missing, the missing ingredient is in being able to um, not get a consensus, but to mm-hmm. get the necessary um, inertia created. Yeah. So again, I'm, I'm drawing from Andre Henry's work here, and I, I, don't, I don't want to be showing for him, but he's. I, you should. People who listen to podcast should probably buy his book. All the white friends I couldn't keep. One of the way he breaks it down is that there needs to be a certain sense of attention to identifying two groups of people that we sort of want to organize and persuade. One is the people who are actually genuinely on the fence about the issue. Um, And it's important to be able to distinguish because, you know, like oftentimes, and I would say particularly white people are very good at this, what we will present as being on the fence, we'll present as saying like, well, my mind isn't made up. Like maybe reparations are a good thing, but I haven't thought about like there are these questions and like being able to distinguish when someone is generally considering the question and saying like, well, what is right in this place? And when someone's engaging in a whole lot of like, what about isms, 
if they're what about isn't you're like okay well you're on the other side of the fence so i'm not gonna like i'm not gonna give time to you it's not worth it but to some, then identifying the pe- group of people who are are genuinely uncertain about how to proceed i think with that group of people i do believe if they're really questioning like we can get those people on board in the way i think and might be naive on this point but my thought is my thought is generally the way to get them on board is with kind of hard facts so like we can point out very hard data about the profound inequities in wealth and political agency that are granted to white communities and black communities. And we can identify how those profound disparities impact everything else. And it's stark and it's like really uncomfortable and unpleasant to look at. And we can say like, these are, these are just numbers and facts. And then we can like confront people with the crisis of the question, which I think this is a place where people often don't quite get to the level of when we look at these massive inequities. We can say these kind of inequities at this scale demand some kind of explanation. Fundamentally, when it comes down to it, like there's basically just two explanations you can offer. One is that there's a system of sabotage and theft. Like you can say that there's a systemic thing that is moving wealth and power from black people to white people. And the other option you could offer, if you don't accept that one, is that you actually think that there's something wrong with black people. Mm-hmm. And so like when we face it, when we face squarely the reality, we're left with the choice that we either have to say, yes, the system is racist and something must be done about it, or at least be honest about the fact that you are in fact a bigot and think black people are deficient. And that'll clarify where you're sitting on the fence, you know? That's one piece. The other piece that I think can be helpful for people is appealing on some level to some level of kind of enlightened self-interest. And this is something I've been thinking about since, you know, working with community organizers in, in D.C. And I'm guessing you guys have done that, too. But, you know, community organizers will always tell you that you have to organize people based on self-interest. And then you kind of figure out, well, how do we frame it in a way that speaks to the, the well-being and the whole of all? Um, and we can, I think, identify some of those things pretty clearly. So, like, in a in a secular, like, real practical, pragmatic sense, we can point to the fact that, like, again, really, really good data shows that the healthiest, most content, most stable, and freest societies on Earth are also the ones in which exists the greatest equity. Um, So that inequity is inherently a cause of unhealth across the board. It's inherently a cause of destabilization. It's inherently a cause of lack of freedom for everyone. And like you can get into the specifics of of how that works and why that works and why, in fact, like white supremacy is a losing proposition for most white people as well. In a spiritual sense, there is this sense, like Jesus tells us, you know, the truth and the truth shall make you free. Where like there is this sense where Jesus calls us to be accountable and to repent and basically say, like, you are not going for Christians. You know, like you're not going to be right with Jesus if you are still beholden to participating in and supporting a system of white supremacy, like he's not going to be okay with that. And you got to figure out, you know, what matters to you. You're listening to The R Word, a podcast production of KUAF Public Radio. Dustin and Lowell will be back after this break. Hey y'all, I'm Joy McGowan. And I'm Denisha Simpson. And And we are Resilient Resilient Black Black Women. Women. Resilient Black Women is a new podcast that aims to demystify mental health and increase 
increase access to mental health care for all people, but especially Black women and women of color. Research shows that Black women and women of color have more barriers standing in their way of seeking mental health care, including racism and discrimination, the stigma of mental health care, limited access and lack of providers who identify within communities of color. So join us on the second and fourth Friday of the month as we break down barriers and talk about resilience, grief, our bodies, and much, much more. The Resilient Black Women podcast is available at KUAF.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. I hear this this tenor in what you're saying is, can we get to the belief that everyone can win? And oftentimes what we end up having to do is selling people on how pursuing this work is to the benefit of their own self-interest. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's complicated in uh, your own conscience to have to do that. But that's Mm -hmm. oftentimes what we have to appeal to is the mutual benefit of collective thriving. And MLK has the quote that even we'll learn to live together as brothers or we'll perish as fools. Right. Mm -hmm. And the thought is, is that oftentimes we don't think about how our thriving is connected because we live with scarcity in mind. Right. Mm-hmm. And we think that if I promote your thriving, it takes away from my thriving. Right. Mm-hmm. I think about if I if I create systems and structures that help the kid on the other side of town succeed, that kid now is going to be competing with my kid, which limits his opportunities when right. the the data does not bear that out to be true. And right. so oftentimes we are wrestling with a nightmare that has no grounding in reality. But I I have another question. I always think about the work of racial justice, kind of like Sisyphus in Greek mythology, having Hmm. to push the rock up the hill only for it to roll back down on on you and you start all over again, that there's this this cycle of restarting. And, And I say that because there was a sense that maybe in the summer of 2020, COVID, that there was some movement. We might actually get a critical mass enough to actually knock down some of these walls. And then by the end of that year, we have Mm -hmm. all of the CRT stuff springing up. And it's kind of brought us to this place where you know we're in the in beginning of 2024 and i feel like we are in the worst place mm-hmm. broadly in this work than we were at that point and so as a, a white person who is pursuing this work what mm-hmm. is it that keeps you pushing the boulder uphill yeah what, what keeps you moving forward? What keeps you yeah. hopeful? I'd say there's a couple of things. One is, is working really hard in my own thinking and everywhere else to resist narratives of inevitability. So like I think of that Sisyphus thing all the time, right? 
Um, but I also think, and this is not casting any aspersions on the ancient Greeks and everything, but they thought from a fatalistic standpoint. Like they thought that this is how things were and this is how it's going to be and you can't do anything about it. You know, one of the strategies of white supremacy is to get us to believe that as well, to think that this is how it has always been and how it's always going to be. In that period, in in, um, in the midst of 2020, there was a, a colleague I'd been working with, but he he said this thing, he, he works on climate um climate justice, but he also does a lot of work around racial justice and immigrant rights. And I heard an interview with him where he said this thing where he said, hope is a political choice. And essentially making the statement that like, if we don't believe that it's possible for something else to happen, we've already conceded the battle again and again throughout our nation's history. Like it does feel like there's a in moment with like reconstruction. You mentioned the thing about like collective benefit where like these Black-led governments throughout the South following the Civil War during Reconstruction were implementing reforms that were making things tangibly better for everyone, including poor whites. You know, and like we can see it again during uh, the Southern Freedom Movement, Civil Rights Movement. We can see it again, maybe possibly in that moment in 2020. And every time where it seems like there's an inflection point where we could turn towards uh, a real creative possibility of justice, it feels like we turn away. So one thing that I would I try to remember as well is not that exactly that we turn away, but in those cases that we are being sabotaged. So like if you look at Reconstruction, like there was a specific campaign, a propaganda campaign of convincing a majority of um, white Southerners that Reconstruction was bad for them, and a campaign of terrorism and sabotage that that, that you know led to that result. You mentioned with following 2020, you know this whole discourse around CRT and then following that, the conservative discourse around like woke culture that was intended to sabotage the fact we might be moving in the right direction. Like the Sisyphusian metaphor feels real, but it's actually more like Sisyphus is pushing the boulder up the hill. And when he gets towards the top, there's somebody who's kicking it back down. Right. Mm. And that gives us like a picture of being like, okay, like these are human forces. These are human actors that are working against us. It's not like an inevitable thing about the shape of the universe. Another piece that I think is really um, important and helpful for me is thinking about my own sense of self-interest and my own stake in it, you know, and that for me, partly it has been like very real and specific relationships. The relationship with my wife and my son, with her family, that's very, you know, that's why I'm out here on the East Coast where, where they are, my wife family, there's my family that's on the West Coast. So like they're the folks I'm connected with. His uh, his play uncles and aunts and, and his cousins, you know, who become part of our family unit and support structure, my congregation, my best friend, all of these folk, very specific people I care about who I can see in the story of their lives, how they are being sabotaged. You know, I can see that folk that I know because I know them personally, like story again and again that they encounter of, of being stymied in the possibility of what they could offer. So like that personal stake of people I love and saying like, I just don't want them to live in this world. It, it makes me think uh, about something that we talked about on the podcast a while ago. And it's the idea of the work of racial justice requires stamina. And it's because what has historically happened in, in this fight and many other fights is that uh, those who are in power are playing the long game. 
um, I compared it to uh, a conversation uh, that I was I had once about why players in the NFL never win their collective bargaining agreements, and I said it's because they don't have the leverage that a, a league like you know the NBA has, mm-hmm. to where most players are making enough money to hold out. And so the NFL has so many players who are barely getting by. It is those players who tend to be the ones who say, hey, I have to give in um, because Mm -hmm. I can't make it. And typically what happens, I think, in these struggles is uh, our white brothers and sisters, black people have been having these fights, you know, our, our entire lives for generations and uh, white brothers and sisters who aren't used to struggling, who aren't used mm-hmm. to losing opportunity, who aren't used to losing friends for what they stand for, get fatigued, and which um, becomes the detriment of the forward movement yeah. oftentimes. Yeah. And what I often have to tell my white brothers and sisters who are participating in this work is that your stamina is essential. And that's why I love that you just talked about doing things that cultivate that health that will make the long marathon of this work possible. There's that. And then this is the last thing I want to ask, because I've been asking all the questions. <laughs> Something that we often have talked about on, on this podcast is the need for creativity and something that I like to call, and others have said, you know, uh, redemptive imagination. One of the things that you don't normally give those in power who are pushing against the the tide of change is that they are incredibly creative mm-hmm. and imaginative of mm-hmm. the way in which they will try to sabotage or obstruct, you know, the change that is happening. And I think one of the things that we have done oftentimes in the work of racial justice is the failure to be as or more creative than the Mm -hmm. system we are attempting to dismantle. And so, and that is in our language of casting vision of, that is in Mm -hmm. our methods, our our practices. And because if I think about, you know, some of the more successful movements historically, particularly, you know, the civil rights movement, how incredibly creative that movement was, but also how well it crafted vision of the world we wanted to be able to live in. And I think one of the major gaps that exists in the modern movements for racial justice is a lack of creativity and vision casting. Yeah, so I'm thinking about that. I I think there's a way that that's definitely true. I'm also having trouble reconciling it with when I meet, and honestly, particularly when I meet um, black leaders that are doing this work, you know, like the folks who engage with our accountability board, like I'm always struck by their like just fierce and, and vibrant creativity and imagination. Mm-hmm. And why? And so then wondering like why, I don't know the answer to that question, but I agree that, I do agree that, that casting vision um, and considering possibility of what could be um, is is really, really important. I think a lot of our um, our failures come down to sort of failures of imagination and this idea that like, well, this, like the, the sense of inevitability, like it's always been this way. So like, what else could we do that would be different? 
Can I, can I clarify my question a little bit for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah please do. Um, yeah, yeah. Is that inherently in lies is creativity. Mm -hmm. You diverge from the truth to create another reality. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and when you tell the truth, that is not necessary. But something sometimes that is lost in that is that that you can tell the truth in a way that also crafts beauty and that yeah. also attempts to get ahead of yeah. the falsehood, right? Yeah. And so if we think about what we just talked about in 2020 and the way in which that in, entire campaign around CRT and wokeism and all that kind of stuff was crafted, was incredibly creative, uh, false, but incredibly yeah. creative as well. There's this... Uh, this general assumption that I that the truth takes less effort, right? Mm, right. When, yeah, yeah, but yeah. when you are competing against incredible lies, you there is an, an, an extra mile to go to say this is why the truth is actually even more profound, mm -hmm. more creative, yeah. more beautiful than that lie that you are telling. So I might suggest an alternative way to talk about it is that like facts might not be creative like facts are just like require like the hard work of like going through archives compiling statistics interviewing folks talking and all that stuff but the truth that we create from it is truth but it is creative because it involves this process of taking this data this information and showing someone the story that it tells it's not fiction but it is certainly deeply, deeply creative. And like you said, it's about crafting a story that someone can see and can see themselves in and can see that story sort of opening into new possibilities of what could be. You know, like fiction and lies aren't necessarily creative per se. Like this is a cheap example, but I did, like a lot of folks, I saw that recent um, Snyder movie that came out on Netflix, uh, Rebel Moon. And like very, very fictional, not that creative as it turns out, right? Um, as compared with extraordinary book, um, uh, Ibram Kendi's, um, the whole missive he wrote, the um, stamp from the beginning, right? Factual, profoundly creative, the way he creates, takes, puts these, all of these facts together and strings them along, watching the lives of these like five people that he puts in sequence to this long arc of history. Mm -hmm that allows us to see the whole shape of the thing and also where we fit into it. I think that's something that we do really need to think about. Cause you're right. Like conservative forces are, are really good at talking points are really good at pivoting. I mean, even with the, you know, like you said, with the, the movement from identifying the whole narrative around CRT. And then when they realized that like, that was a little too maybe obtuse for people, then they went with the wokeism thing because like people could get their head around. Yes. And so like, we do need to be adaptive. Certainly. I think the art of storytelling is essential. Well, I want to jump in here. I introduced you, Peter, as somebody who is practicing reparations. In in our last season of the podcast, we talked primarily to theorists, people who had written mm -hmm. books. And you're a theorist. You've, you've written a book. But you're also a practitioner. Um, you're a part of uh, a committee. And, and so I wanted to ask you, Peter, to tell us about how you're practicing reparations. There's some specifics um, both in your book and that you've shared with me in, in conversation. So, so for people maybe who you talked about, you know, the different 
sort of camps that people are in, maybe for, for those who are not asking whether we should practice mm-hmm. reparations, but those who are asking how we could, tell us what that looks like for, for you all in Washington, D.C. One piece we're working on really hard is getting at the local level, getting our working with congregations, providing them with resources to really investigate their own history of participation in um, uh, structures of white supremacy, how they've benefited from it, who was hurt. In the case of our black congregations, predominantly black congregations, being able to tell this history of how they were used and abused and share that information, that has been really helpful in terms of mobilizing folks. I think there is a whole lot of wrestling about like what the, the next stages will be. And so some of the practical concerns that, that I've lifted up that may be especially relevant for churches around the country right now. I have really counseled and encouraged churches to look at the question from the perspective of wealth, reparations from wealth, rather than income, which is how congregations tend to think of themselves. And to get congregations to begin thinking about what is your actual wealth? And I mean that in real like hard financial terms, like what is what are your what are your property assets? What's your real estate? These sorts of things. And look consider it question kind of collectively for us as a denomination, like a lot of mainline churches, like most churches around the country, overall the trends are heading towards decline, towards you know, shrinkage and everything like that. And to note that in the midst of that, there is this real creative potential. We've been talking with folks about this, like, okay. Realistically, even with really creative, energized leadership that will be able maybe to found new communities, revitalize some of these congregations, there is going to be attrition. There's going to be some congregations that are able to to step into a new moment in their history, and there's other ones that are going to die on the vine. And then the question becomes, well, what happens with those congregations? Because this congregation that's died on the vine has a building, has, has property. And then ask the creative question, what are you going to do with it? to encourage them to really think and seize the freedom and the creativity of this moment to engage a resurrection model and say, okay, like this is the moment when you are as a congregation going into the tomb, this body is dying, but it could be born again. And being reborn again could look like saying, we acknowledge, we recognize whether directly or indirectly that these assets we have were piled up by plundered stolen wealth. So at this moment where we're dying on the vine, what we recognize is we have a unique opportunity to return them. And that could look like surrendering assets directly, you know, to like a black-led organization that's doing community uh, and economic development work and saying, here, this physical plant, do with it what you will. It could like look like selling it off and giving, you know, all of the proceeds to folks that are doing that work. There's, again, with that creative element, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Yeah, I think that's really good, Peter. I appreciate your answer to the question. And it's um, helpful for us in our place to know that there are people in other places who are practicing the theory um, or trying to, however imperfectly. And, you know, Peter, as I've interacted with uh, your book and in conversation with you, I've really understood, you know, the nuts and bolts of what you all are doing to be one way to describe it is, is you're asking congregations, uh, Episcopal churches in your diocese to do three things. One uh, is to give uh, about 14 percent mm-hmm. of, of the church's wealth to black led organizations. Um, mm-hmm. Two uh, is for uh, the church to educate people inside mm-hmm. of it um, as to why they're doing that, for that mm-hmm. to be a part of the church's discipleship. 
Um, and then three, to invite other churches to do the same, mm-hmm. uh, a form of evangelism, if you will. And I yeah. think to your point, like, man, 14% of wealth uh, can feel like the end of the world. But I love how in your book you say this, this feels like the end of the world, but it's not. It's the end of the world as we know it. And, and you know, your church is Calvary Church, and we know um, that we know what happens after death from the right. Christian perspective. It's, it's resurrection. There's new life. And so it's been important for me to under, understand those specifics because um, it has emboldened me and us, I think, to make asks in our community knowing um, that there are other mm-hmm. people in other places who are doing the same. But, and I hadn't thought of it until you said it, but like going back to what you were saying about like, how do we craft the story? One piece that's there that I hadn't really thought about, but it's, it's real, is that like being, when you want to be able to create a story someone can see themselves in, is partly appealing to understandings and resources that they already possess. So like those three pieces, they're definitely part of how we thought about it. But basically you can map them on to things that we, we say are fundamental parts of being a part of a church congregation, right? There's discipleship, there's Christian education, and then there's evangelism. And they're mm-hmm. like, okay, that's that's how we're thinking about it. There's, I mean, so discipleship, there's stewardship, uh, there's Christian education, there's evangelism. It's like, okay, stewardship is what are we going to do with our wealth? Christian education is how do we form ourselves into the work that we're doing? And then evangelism is like, we're not actually doing it if we're not teaching other people about it too. And that has been helpful. So like when you say nuts and bolts and specifics, like we've done things like produce curriculums that folks can use in their congregations, but also practical uh, curriculums that, that help them as a congregation in their adult forums begin to dig into the history of their community. Um, so yeah, I think creating resources that are, are portable at the local level is, is really important. Peter, as we conclude, do you have any last words for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I would just basically say that, and Dustin, again, thinking about the piece, the Sisyphus thing you said, it's like, what if we understood instead that it's not just this inevitable thing of the rock rolling back down the hill, but what happens at every point is that we're pushing towards the top of the hill and we start to get tired and this guy comes along to kick the boulder and understanding that the way we need to understand the situation is if at that moment we kind of slack off, if at that moment we we, wear, we say, oh, this is just too hard, then the result we're going to have is having to go back down to the hill and push the boulder again. When you mentioned the piece about the end of the world as we know it, it's like a question of like looking around and being like, is this world really the world we want to live in like is it really so great that we're willing to be stuck in this cycle for like another go round until we get our next opportunity in another reconstruction being like or could we say okay this is a moment where still and i very much agree like there's been a lot of turning away and backlash following 2020 but i'm still hopeful that like the iron is still hot so like this is still a moment maybe where we could turn towards and say we, we really are going to do this and we want to push this boulder over the top of the hill so we, we can see what's on the other side. And that's really the choice we get to make. It's like, do we want to be back in this cycle again 20 years later saying, boy, we had an opportunity and like, mm, we have to do it again. Like, I don't think any of us want that. I really appreciate you uh, joining us today. I really appreciate your thoughtfulness and the way you, you've worked through the questions um, that we've asked and even processed the work that you're doing um, back home. Um, and uh, the optimism you bring for it. I think it's something that we need, and 
Uh, you're a person I love to sit down and drink some uh, something with. I don't drink coffee or beer, and so but we we can you know chug up something together and just talk more about this. But it's been good uh, like this, and rich. Thank you. Thank you. Me. I would like that. Well, it's a wrap for us today. Uh, thank you all okay. for joining us at the R Word Podcast. Thanks, Peter. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Subscribe to The R Word wherever you get podcasts. And learn more about The R Word podcast, The R Word events, and the Zacchaeus Foundation on our website, thezacchaeusfoundation.org.